Hey, Forest Hill Church, you know, as we continue to build bridges that connect everyone to dynamic life in Christ, one of the values we use is to always bring our best in everything that we do. We asked you to bring your best back at Christmas Eve while we took up an offering to support our partner churches in the Middle East, North Africa, and you certainly did. So check out this thank you video from our partner church, Resurrection Church Beirut. Greetings from Lebanon, from the Resurrection Church family, from its leaders, staff, and volunteers. I want to thank you for keeping us all in your prayers during these difficult times. We believe that God has placed us strategically at the heart of the Middle East to be present as His body, to make a difference, and to see communities around us transformed by the Gospel. In the last 10 years, we have experienced one crisis after the other in Lebanon, but with everyone, we were challenged to see it as an opportunity to spread God's kingdom. We are privileged to be part of His miraculous work. On behalf of all the RCB family, we want to thank the leadership of Forest Hill Church and its congregation for your generosity. Thank you so much. Please continue to pray for the church to be a light and a blessing in a dark place. May God bless you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. شكرا كثير لكم على المساعده وبتمنى لكم ايام سعيده شكرا على وفدكم معنا والرب يبارككم مثل ما انتم عم تصلونا نحن عم نصليكم ميرسي كثير لدعمكم لنا بحب اقول لكم شكرا من القلب لانكم حدنا بنقول شكرا شكرا ويسوع معكم ثانك يو شكرا ميرسي ميرسي كثير ميرسي كثير لكم ثانك يو فور بيينج بارت اوف ذس جيرني اند فور يور جينيروس كريسماس جيفت Thank you for praying for us as we go make disciples in Lebanon and the whole Arab-speaking world. Isn't that cool? Praise God for that. We have this partnership. And again, for those of you that gave, thank you for your generosity. But uh, in light of what they just said, would you please join me in prayer for this church? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege we have of being called yours, the called out ones that you've also sent out into our world. And we're grateful for the work that you're doing at the Resurrection Church under the leadership of Pastor Hikmat and the other leaders that are there. We pray, God, for your prosperity among them. We pray for your protection, and we pray that, God, you'd continue to enable them to do what they said, to spread the gospel of the kingdom of God, to make disciples in Lebanon and the Arab-speaking world, and to represent you well. We pray that we would do the same here as they pray for us. We pray for them as well, partnering together in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you very much. Well, my name is Jonathan Scott, one of the pastors here, and it is a privilege to welcome you to this particular service. For those of you that are here at the South Park campus and those of you that are also watching online, thanks for joining us. And those of you that are watching at one of our other campuses in the Charlotte and surrounding areas as we continue in this series of finding God. Where to find God? How do you find God? Realizing that God really is everywhere but especially in some of those unexpected, maybe mundane kinds of places where God is. A couple of weeks ago, we took a look at the fact that Jesus came on the back of a donkey rather than riding in glory on a, on a stallion. He came as this victorious, conquering king, but in humility, and reminds us of the kind of heart that this king for us has. Last week, we took a look at how we were able to find God in those places where rather than expecting to get something from him, that we see him as he is, and that inspires us to give our best. Today's message, it's another unexpected place to find God to find God in distress. 
In those places where we may be going through soul-crushing circumstances, where we think that God is distant, aloof, no longer even anywhere near, that God, more than we can even imagine, is so closely present to us in those times of distress, those kinds of no-win situations. To illustrate that, got to take you all the way back to a classic movie, 1982, The Wrath of Khan, Star Trek. Any Star Trek fans in the house? We have a little bit more than we had the last service. That's awesome. So in Star Trek II and Wrath of Khan, James T. Kirk shows up on the, on the, uh, um, the uh, bridge of the Enterprise, and he's actually giving some kind of uh, tips and encouragements because a particular cr- uh, recruit has failed the simulation, the Kobayashi Maru. That's the no-win situation. And going over, it says basically the Kobayashi Maru is designed to affect the person who's leading in a way that they've got to face their own fear and how they respond to no-win situations. And he says to Commander Savick, he says, well, how we respond in times of death is just as important as how we respond in times of life as well. Turns out that Captain James Tiberius Kirk is the only person ever to have beaten the Kobayashi Maru. And here's how he did it. He cheated the system. He redesigned the simulation, reprogrammed it so that he would win because he admit he hates to lose. And somehow Starfleet gave him a commendation for creativity and ingenuity in outwitting the simulation. However, in that particular episode, he didn't, well, he was not able to pass his own real-life Kobayashi Maru because that was a movie where Commander Spock, his best friend, gave his life to save the Enterprise from destruction. And in that amazing scene that Kirk was just broken by, they are separated by glass and they've got their hands and he's watching his friend die because they're in a no-win situation, sometimes you make the decision to do what costs you to save everybody else. There was that amazing line, remember that? That sometimes the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. And Captain Kirk had to deal with the fact that in a no situation, although the ship was saved, he had lost what was very precious to him. Question, how do you deal with your no-win situation? How do you deal with your Kobayashi Maru's? Those places where you're experiencing or you are forecasting and foreseeing soul-crushing issues where a decision has to be made and you know that no matter what happens, you are going to lose. There's something about the human nature. We have this amazing instinct for survival and we want, if there's a particular set of circumstances that are troubling, we want to be able to either go around it or avoid it or get taken out of it, but we know that going through it, it's going to cost us and we bristle at the prospect of of enduring pain and disadvantage. Today's message is not just how do we find God in distress. Interestingly enough, it's how we find God in his distress. How we find God in his distress that actually informs us as to how we can locate and find hope in Christ, in God, in our own as well. So we're going to take a look at a passage in the book of Matthew, chapter 26. So if you are able, in the honor of the reading of God's word, let me ask you to stand, and we'll take a look at this very familiar passage of Jesus' encounter of his crushing, pressing distress in the Garden of Gethsemane, beginning with verse 36. Then Jesus came with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he told the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, I am 
deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He asked Peter, so you couldn't stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. He came again and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. After leaving them, he went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping, still resting? See, the time is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. My betrayer is near. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. We're going to need to kind of do a little bit of a dive into this to understand what Jesus is going through and the impact. This is the night of his betrayal. Uh, uh, right before he is crucified, he has left the upper room, heading across the Kidron Brook into this place, this Garden of Gethsemane, which is really an olive grove. A lot of olive trees in this particular place is located at the foot of Mount, Ol Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. And he's going to this place that's called Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane actually means oil press, oil press. And there's a significance of what that means and as far as how it connects with our story. You see, what happens with olives is that the, the way that you get the olive oil out of it, you gather all the olives together and then you crush them under a pretty heavy weight until you make a paste, right? And then they take that paste, put it in baskets and place those baskets under more heavy stone weights and applying pressure to crush, to get every drop of oil out of those olives as possible. They crushed them the first time when it's crushed under that stone weight. That oil is the best oil, the purest oil, and that's the oil that automatically goes to the temple. It serves to anoint prophets and priests and kings and to light the lamps in the temple. Then more weight is placed and there's a second pressing. More oil comes out and that particular oil is used for food or for medicine. And then more weight is pressed on it again to extract every bit of oil from the olive. And that oil then goes to making such things as lamp, uh, oil for lamps in houses as well as soap. Pressing one, two, three heavy weights to extract as much oil as possible. It's interesting that Jesus, the title for Jesus is Messiah. That title, as Jason mentioned last week, is anointed one, the anointed one. And what do you anoint kings and priests with? With olive oil, but only through the process of crushing. As one person said, the olive is valuable, but the only way to get the oil is by crushing it. And the Messiah is going to go through his own crushing and pressing there in the Garden of Gethsemane in a way that most people would not have thought even possible. So Jesus is taking his disciples and he gets into the garden. He says to eight of them, he puts them in a, in a particular place and says, you all stay here. Gives them no further instructions. Doesn't tell them to pray, doesn't tell them to stay awake. He says, you just stay here and that's it. 
he takes Peter, James, and John further in. Now, Peter, James, and John are the three that are always kind of with him on those special moments. As a matter of fact, in one of the cases, Peter, James, and John accompanied Jesus up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they witnessed Jesus Christ being magnificently transfigured, transformed into this radiant, powerful, glorious state, and he was flanked by the deceased prophets of Moses and Elijah. It was absolutely amazing for the disciples to see this majestic, magnificent picture of Jesus. This particular scene would be as far from that as you can imagine. Because this Jesus, whom they've seen in absolute, always composed control or righteous indignation, that no matter what was thrown at him, what questions would come at him, what oppositions, Jesus remained unflappable. He remained absolutely undaunted and in control. But here, they are seeing something completely different in Jesus because Jesus, as he takes them away from the other eight, Jesus becomes to be very transparent with his friends. And he says to them, out of the fact that he is sorrowful and troubled, he says, I am sorrowful to the point of death. Jesus must kind of look like a mess because he is completely envisioning with HD clarity what's about to come. The torture and the trauma, the abandonment, the excruciation he's about to deal with, the hanging on the cross, the suffering, the separation from God that he is about. As a matter of fact, the word there for cup talks not only about suffering and death, but also about the wrath of God against wickedness and against sin that Jesus is going to take. Not because of his own sin, because he has done, but for the sins of the world. When Jesus says that he is deeply grieved and troubled and sorrow, the words there, Jesus is saying that he is astounded, astonished, shocked with terror. It has gripped him. So that's not just something that he feels. It's something that he's becoming. As he is overwhelmed, overcome by what's to take place to the point to where it feels like he is on the verge of death. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Emotionally, where it was so bad, so heavy, you felt you didn't have the ability to be able to go on. So he says to the disciples, the three, he actually puts them in a place and then he says, you stay here and stay awake with me. Stay alert with me. What's interesting is that he does not say to the disciples, guys, I really need your help. I, I need your moral support. I'm broken right now. If you could just please pray for me. There's nothing in any of the gospels that says that Jesus, if he may have said it, we usually don't have it recorded, where Jesus was asking for prayer. As a matter of fact, what he instructs the disciples to do is to pray for themselves. <laughs> with all that Jesus has got going on, with all that he's got coming at him, his concern is for how his disciples are going to make it through their own Kobayashi Maru, their own Gethsemane, their own crushing. And he tells them, you pray so that you will not enter into temptation. And then the scripture says that he goes on a little farther and he falls face down and he kneels. You know, sometimes when you and I kneel to pray, if things are going well, we kneel kind of lightly. But when we're burdened, we just hit the floor and Jesus hits the floor. And in this particular scenario, we have some things we can learn about 
how to find God in our distress from the example of God in his distress. Here's what's interesting. The disciples, it says that Jesus went on a little farther. In other words, he was far enough away from the eight, but maybe probably not so far away from the three so that possibly the three could have heard him. They could have heard his anguished cries and his prayers. And what the disciples may have learned yet didn't follow the example of you and I have the benefit of being able to learn from them. And what I want to consider as the ABCs of what to do when you're in distress. And when I say ABCs, I don't mean to diminish. I don't mean this is simplistic. This is purely something that can be something you can remember. The ABCs of what to do when you're in that crushing place of distress. We find the first one, approach God as father. Approach God as father. I love to hear my name called. I love to hear my name called, Jonathan, right? Even when I was younger, they also gave me kind of a short name, Jonna, from my Jamaican parents and Jamaican background. I love it. My wife, I may, I love to hear how she pronounces my name, Jonathan. I love it. I love it. But I got to tell you that out of all the names that I'm called, one of my favorite names that I'm called is Dad. My kids, my son, in that deep voice, hey, Dad, <laughs> calls me Dad. Or, or Christine, sometimes she'll say, hey, daddy. She calls me daddy. I love it. It's a, there's just something about hearing my kid's voice calling me that just, I'm all ears. Compared to God, I'm a wicked dad. Compared to God, I'm just, I'm evil. So if I get a kick and a joy out of hearing daddy when my kids call me, how do you think God might feel when he hears you calling him? Approaching God as Father, in the passage here, verse 20, uh, 39, chapter 26, going a little farther, it says that Jesus fell face down and prayed, my Father, my, my Father. That's the relationship that Jesus has always endured, uh, enjoyed all of his life, God as Father. As a matter of fact, later on in the book of Mark, you'll also say that he calls God Abba which is the word that young children use when they're speaking to their dads, their papas, with affection and with trust and with love. Abba. He falls face down in Gethsemane and he calls Abba. Abba. Approaching God as Father. Approaching God as the one who loves you, who knows you, who cares for you, even in the midst of soul-crushing distress. Jesus is the one that gives us a permission, in a sense, to call God Daddy. As a matter of fact, people in the Old Testament, they never really personally ever referred to God as Father. But yet, when the disciples said, Jesus teaches us how to pray, and Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way, our Father. And then for those of us in Christ, the Holy Spirit goes even further to says that in Romans chapter 8, that we have been given the Spirit where we can call God as sons and daughters. We can call God Abba, personal, affectionate, which raises a couple of insights. How do you approach God in the midst of your distress? What, what picture of God do you have on your mind when you're going through those kind of problems? Do you refer to him as Father, as Abba? Or do you refer to him maybe in the perception of your mind as tyrant, dictator? unfair, disappointing, uncaring, aloof, because the pain of this experience has so crushed your soul that it's also distorted the perception of who God is. 
that we are on the verge of making that decision between whether or not we're going to continue to be devoted to God or live in disappointment because he didn't come through the way that we wanted him to. He didn't honor our request, didn't answer our prayers, didn't fulfill our will, and therefore we're going to punish him. And the punishment is withdrawing from him, not going to talk to you anymore. You're not the kind of father I want to have. Some of us can get to the point because of our disappointment where our perception of God is distorted and we treat him as less than he is. Yet all the while understanding that this God, even while we're feeling the way that we feel about him, he ain't going anywhere. And his love for us doesn't change and he's always, still, constantly father. Constantly the one who loves us and cares for us. Understanding what is happening to our soul in those moments. Here's another question for you. What is your pattern of communion with God? What is the, the discipline of how you come together in fellowship with God? Luke chapter 22, it says that Jesus went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives and disciples followed him. John 18, Judas, who betrayed Jesus, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. As usual. In other words, Jesus didn't see this moment coming and said, you know something, I think I, need, I think I really need to pray. I've not really been doing it, but now I really need to pray, and he's doing something that's kind of brand new. No. Jesus is always in communion with God, and it says that Gethsemane is a place where he frequently went with his disciples and a frequent place that he would go to pray, to pour out his heart before God. And Gethsemane was not the only place. There were other places as well. But it was a regular habit because Jesus lived in constant communion with God so that this prayer time, although the circumstances were unique, the circumstances were special, his discipline in being with God wasn't. It wasn't. Sometimes you and I, we upgrade the quality of our prayer life when the circumstances in our life heat up as well. As opposed to the fact that in the ongoing real struggle of our life, the character of our as usual affects the character of our communion with God. So the first place in approaching God as Father is making sure that you and I are practicing our communion when things are okay, when things are challenging, versus when things are in distress, because it does something to affect our perception. The first one, A, approach God as Father. B, bear your soul. Pour out your heart before God. He sees that anyway. He knows what's going on. Verse 39, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Mark 14, 35, Jesus prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. Let's stop right there. Stop right there for a second because let's not rush ahead into the, but not my will, but your will be done. Let's just stop here in this moment where Jesus is actually praying, God, Father, Daddy, is there any other way? I don't, I don't know that I want this. Is there any other way? I, I know that's what we set up, this whole thing was set up for. I, I know why I came, but as I'm seeing it, as I'm visualizing what's coming, Daddy, is there any other way? Can you, Folks, there's got to be way more of a prayer from Jesus than what's recorded here. Paragraphs, writhing in agony. 
hoping that somehow the plan that they both agreed could be adjusted somehow to reduce the pain he was about to experience. Daddy, is it any other way? When you approach God as Father, then come honest with your hurt. Come honest with your hurt. Bear your soul. Pour out your, let God hear everything. Jesus is raw. Jesus is open. Jesus is vulnerable. Jesus is in pain, and he pours all of that out before his Abba. Folks, this, this ain't a time for pretty prayers. This is a time for gut-level expression of what's going on in your broken and crushed soul. How bad was it? The scripture basically says that in Luke chapter 23, it was so bad that an angel from heaven appeared to Jesus, strengthening him. An angel appeared. To the point of death, he was given strength to continue to go through it. And then even further, verse 44 says, Jesus being in anguish, he prayed more fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. His medical condition is called hematidrosis, where because of internal anguish and stress on the inside, it can become so intense that the blood vessels can actually burst, congealing blood with perspiration so that a person actually sweats, a combination of sweat and blood at the same time. So intense was this soul crushing weight on Jesus that his, the essence of who he is is leaking outside of him. Tell that to God. Whatever is broken, whatever is breaking. As a matter of fact, I'd say this. Before you start telling God what's right, what you should do, tell God what's real. Tell God what's real. Before you tell God what you should do, tell God what it is doing. He can take it. He can handle it. And there's something cathartic about actually being able to express to God what is going on inside and around you. Because when we approach God as Father, when we bear our soul to him, it prepares us for this next hard step. Choose God's will over your own. Choose God's will over your own. Verse 39, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. I don't think he said that with a smile on his face. I think he may have gasped that out with sobs and tears. You see, the passion and the priority of Jesus' life has always been to do the will of God. It was the air that he breathed. It was his food and his drink. He lived his life in a way that he never veered away from the will of God. And yet here in this moment, faced with that temptation to say, God, I want something else, he also says, but no. I want what you do. And there's more crushing. As he surrenders himself, to the will of God. Yet something changes in Matthew chapter 26, verse 42. Again, this is after he went to the disciples and found them sleeping. These guys, he said, hey, we're gonna die for you. They couldn't even stay awake. He finds them a second time. He goes back and he says, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. That's different than the other one. 
The first one is, hey, let's come up with another plan, but your will be done. This one says, God, if this hour, if this moment can only pass if I drink it, I'm ready to do your will. Maybe it was the angel that strengthened him for that resolve. Maybe it was the first part of the prayer that expressed his heart before God that he was now in a position to say, okay, more and more of the pressing, I am ready to do your will no matter what. Jesus teaches us that this God in distress, we, are, we learn that the kingdom of God is entered into and embraced fully only when we deny our will and affirm and submit to his. That is the essence of being a citizen of the kingdom of God, placing our will under it's not an easy thing. It's a soul-crushing reality that has on another side of it glory, but going through it. Several years ago, I had one of my Gethsemane moments. One of those days in taking care of my late wife where things were not going well. I was doing everything I could to keep things together at the job. I was doing everything to keep things together going on with the kids. I was taking care of stuff that was going on with my family beyond and, and, and my late wife as well too. And I, things were not going well in the house and I broke. I, I broke. And I, I, I crumpled onto the floor. And I was, I was done. I was doing the ugly cry, you know? I didn't care. And I told God, God, I, I can't do this anymore. I don't, I don't know that I want to do I said that. I don't know that I want to do this anymore. I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm sobbing and just pouring all of this out because of all that was going on. I just, I just couldn't take it anymore. And I lay there for a while. And somehow, Somehow, even through the tears, in my prayer, the word but came. But God, if you are to take me through this, I cannot do this on my own. I need your help. I don't have any more left. I have nothing left. And here's the thing, things did not get better. Things did not get better. But I did. Not easily. <laughs> I got up and got back to taking care of things. God gave me the strength. And I would, I would love to sit here and tell you that Yes, by my resolve and by my commitment, I found God. No, folks, here's the thing. I don't know that I found God in that moment. I know he found me. He found me. Maybe some of you are in that kind of moment right now, or it's coming. And you're wondering how you're going to be able to get through it. Maybe some of you right now as a, as a single adult, you're wondering 
and you're looking at the prospects on the horizon and there aren't, and you're wondering if marriage is ever going to happen for you. Some of you are married and you want out of the marriage because things are so torturously difficult. Or situations with your kids, young kids or your adult children making decisions that is destroying their life. Some of you are looking at the horizon and it's bleak as you're looking at how to be able to take care of your loved ones. The diagnosis that came in for your medical or mental health, the outlook is not good. There's no cure. And you're wondering, Abba. Folks, I'm not, I'm not lying to you. The will of God is What God allows is hard. And our natural tendency is to basically pray, God, get me out of it. <laughs> That's okay. That's natural. Get me out of it. Where sometimes the loving father says, daughter, son, no, I will get you to a glory greater than your crushing. Trust me. I know things don't look good. And here's the other powerful comfort. Jesus Christ is saying to you, I've been there. I was there. I understand every aspect of pain and fear terror you're going through. I went through it alone, only with Abba. You will not go through it alone. I am with you. No matter what, I am with you. And that is part of the comfort that God's divine presence and power is always close to those who are devoted to his divine purpose. Listen to this passage from Hebrews chapter 4. It says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness to our Abba, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And folks, don't... You may not even have the right want to to do that. The, the want to may not be there. I know what that's like. As a matter of fact, that's one of the reasons why I'm glad for Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. It says this, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Even when your want to ain't there. You go before God and let me offer you a, a distressed prayer. This is a, a prayer that I've prayed a bunch of times in my life. That when you're in distress, soul question, you're looking at the horizon, it ain't looking good, and it's not getting any better. And by the way, it's okay to pray to God, God, get me out of it. That's okay. <laughs> Tell God that. God, I don't want to go through that. Please, do something else. But there's got to be a but there somewhere. And so here's a distress prayer that you can pray. Father, help me to trust that your will is good 
especially in those times when your will is hard. Help me to trust you that your will is good, especially in those times when your will is hard because God, you are good. Please remember that the founder of our faith, Jesus Christ, he went through soul crushing so that he can help us and we can receive the mercy and grace we need to move through our challenges with his help, with his presence to experience his divine purpose to reap an eternal glory for us in Christ as well. My friend, I know it's hard. I know there's a lot of questions that are swirling, but God is good even when his will is hard and he will not abandon you. He will give you the strength necessary to become transformed into a reflection of Jesus. That's the eternal perspective that far outweighs anything we go through here. He holds on to you and through the process produces something powerful, beautiful, and good out of your life for his glory. Let's pray. I've heard God some of the stories that are in this room, those that are online, the other campuses, people who are going through absolute soul-crushing circumstances. I am so grateful, Jesus, you know what that feels like. And that we do not go through it alone, even though you did except with your Father, our Father. So I pray for your comfort. I pray for your peace. I pray for your healing. I pray for, God, your power to sustain when there is no strength or oil left. That you would motivate, inspire, bring life and victory through Christ for these that will turn to you in faith to claim you as God and Father. We thank you. We thank you for what you are going to do, even in what you're doing. And we thank you that we do so informed by the life, inspired by the power of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.